1: This is RS1,
0: part of the Radio Show Limited Network. G'day everyone and welcome to On The Grid, your weekly fix of motorsport with a down-under perspective. Each week we'll talk to the leading lights of Aussie motorsport, unpick the key issues, discuss the trending topics and have some fun along the way. From supercars to the Bathurst 12-hour and everything in between, and I mean everything, this is On The Grid. Now, here's the show's host with the most, Tony Shabeki.
2: G'day everyone and welcome to another episode of On The Grid. Thank you for joining us. Another big show coming up. We're going to speak to the head commentator of the NBC's coverage of IndyCar, Lee Diffie, to join Richard Crowe shortly for a chat. We're also going to talk motor racing sponsorship. It's going to be an interesting chat as well with Tom Archuley, who will have a chat to us about Doric's uh, involvement with motor racing and we'll also uh, well have a chat with Mark Walker as well and Richard Crail. Let's kick off the show by handing it over to Richard Crail who caught up with NBC's Lee Diffie to have a chat about what was a very, very interesting 105th running of the Indy 500. Crailsey. Well
0: in the early hours of Monday morning Australian time, the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500 mile race was run and won. And it was an absolute thriller. Elio Castroneves winning his fourth Indy 500, joining a list of just three other drivers to achieve that remarkable feat. But perhaps even more remarkable is that for the third year in a row, it was an Aussie behind the microphone to call one of the biggest races in the world. His name is Lee Diffie. And his call of that classic finish was absolutely perfect.
2: Now here's gets closer.
3: Look at the crowd. They know history's on the line. Welcome to the four-time club. Elio Castro never is. That is
2: awesome. Spider-Man is back at the speedway.
0: Well, And he joins us now on the line. He's got home after a massive weekend at Indianapolis. Lee Diffie, mate, congratulations on an amazing call of an amazing 105th Indy 500. Richard, thanks.
3: Uh, I, think it's, um, I think it's something I'll never forget. Uh, it was just one of those days where it all came together. Um, perfect weather, uh, perfect temperature for the race, that really enhanced uh, closer racing. Um, the crowd, which was to me the most important element, being back at the Speedway, you know, last year was one of the most, actually not one of, it was the most bizarre thing that I've ever been involved in. It was just eerie. It didn't feel real, didn't feel right. And then, uh, and then for it all to come together uh, this past Sunday, felt felt really good. Felt normal. Um, it, you you don't realize how much juice the crowd gives the event and gives us, even though they we're locked in a broadcast booth. Um, it, it's the it's the secret ingredient, and it was the missing ingredient last year. So everything all coming together, and then a brilliant race and
0: a brilliant winner, uh, a fitting winner. It couldn't have been better. The crowd really helped tell the story, I think, of the day and the key moments of how it unfolded. Uh, I don't think anyone will forget that moment. Connor Daly hit the lead for the first time and the place erupted. It was extraordinary. And and it was clear as day through the broadcast as well. It certainly was. And, and that, and for Connor, you know, being, being
3: an indie kid and um, you know, his dad, Derek racing there, I think I mentioned on the broadcast that Connor did something that Derek never did. And that was lead a lap, yeah. let alone lead the most laps, you know, lead 40 and um you know, he's pretty bummed about the way that it panned out in the end. But you know, I said to him, hey, listen, people don't forget guys who lead 40 laps lead the most laps in an nd 500. So
0: it'll it'll come your way one day. But yeah, that was a magical moment. And then it all just built and built, didn't it, until that finish. Did did you get the feeling that Castroneves Evers was in for something special? I mean, he was a contender all day. The car was clearly very good, but it felt like his experience in those last 20 laps, that shootout with Polo. Uh, and Padua Award, all of his 21 Indy starts, it all sort of built towards that moment of him pulling that move with two to go. I mean, I think you have to say that that the way that Pillow
3: and O'Ward drove was, was fantastic. I mean, you just know those guys are going to be around for a long time but, you know, I, Elio has been so brilliant for so long um, but if there's one place that is made for him, it's, it's the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and I remember the very first time that I did a broadcast from there was 2013, got to work with Gilles DeFerrin, Elio's great friend and and an Indy 500 winner himself. And he just said, there's something about Elio and this place. There's something about the way that Elio drives this place. That is, you know, it might be a bit of a stretch to say unique, but there's just something about the two entities that go together. And so in those closing laps, um, I don't know, I can't, I'd be lying if if, if, or any, any of us said that we knew that he was going to do it, but you kind of had that feeling.
0: From a broadcaster <laughs> point of view, what's it like to work at that place and then have the opportunity to call the finish of, of a major moment in that place's history? Because it's not every day you add a four-time winner to the winner's list there in 105 races. Just can you explain what that's like as a as a broadcaster from the booth at the, the top of the pagoda there? Pretty special. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty special for, for a kid from the Brisbane suburbs. Yeah,
3: I can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm still, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, two days later, it's still soaking in, um, but boy, it felt good. Um, you know, and, and um, not just me, but for, for the two guys, I share the booth with Paul Tracy and Townsend Bell. I mean, we all, I don't know. I, 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 I think we knew even before it happened that we were part of something special. And again, I come back to the crowd. You know, it was just such an amazing day. It was just, it, it just felt right. You know, for all the, for everything that everybody has been through during COVID, not just here in the US, but in Australia and in Europe and in, in Asia, every like everywhere. It was just, for me, it was the, it was the first time that something felt normal again. And uh, for it to be the race that played out. You know, we commentate, Richard, from the ninth floor of the Pagoda, yeah. which is a pretty special vantage point anyway. We can see, you know, if we look to our right, we can see them about halfway through the short shoot from three to four, and then we can see them through four all the way up the front straight and into one. Not that we commentate, you know, looking out the windows. We we use that uh, as a visual tool if we need to. We need to commentate mm. on what everybody's watching at home, as you know, as a broadcaster. But um, it, it was it was amazing. Um, it's probably it's probably one of, if not the most. You know special special broadcast of my career um just because of the story right and the way that it unfolded and at the end <clears throat> excuse me at the end not saying anything yeah. you know after you know with elio's victory walk and and the fence climb not saying anything you know what, what we didn't say meant more than what we said you know it was listening and going along for the journey with him so all of those elements just came together on that day
0: yeah that, that finish was amazing that the, the celebration of castronevers and the way you guys let it breathe it it felt very uh un-american tv if you know what i mean just just completely raw and unfiltered um not overly produced just this amazing live moment but it perfectly summed up the whole race for mine and and you could have turned off here and gone to bed at five o'clock in the morning but i found it utterly (laughs) captivating and just kept watching the whole way through it was extraordinary
3: I think only Elio could pull that off, you know. Yes. If it was somebody else, if it was somebody else, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have had the same pizzazz or the or the same. Um, do you know? I'll tell you something. I haven't seen it come out yet in, in public or on social media, but on Sunday night we had an NBC all group get together. Our bosses, you know, corralled us and um, we had pizza and some drinks and uh, and it was just a great kind of um, debrief and just kind of everybody uh, a, a group. Uh, sigh, you know, yeah, like kind of, yeah. you know, get get off the gas, so to speak. And one of them, my colleagues said, "Look at this! I just got sent this from a from a uh, an NBC affiliate. Um, a staff member, like somebody in the NBC family, was in the crowd right in front of Elio as oh, he climbed the good. fence." And so that video is going to come out eventually, but it was from this guy's perspective, looking at Elio from, from in the crowd, climb the fence and it was wow. right in front of him. And it was crazy. It was just like the way that the, the fans reacted. And, and um, you know, usually at the 500, as soon as it's over, the place is like, yep. you know, it, it just, uh, it, it empties very quickly. And the police, the local police do a great job at, at funneling everybody out of there. And I hadn't seen, um, you know, I first went to to and, 2001, I think, 2001 or 2002. One of the early years, Neil Crompton and I were there together for Channel 10. and um, Anyway, so just call it 20 years ago. And, you know, I've never seen that many people stick around afterwards. You know, everyone wanted to be part of the LEO party and the LEO celebration.
0: There was a video, I think, Chris Medlin, I think from Racer Magazine, who who managed to get in just before the race from the UK, posted uh, watching from Pit Road of the crowd chanting, elio's name and it sounded like a european soccer game or something (laughs) remarkable like that that's just just unbelievable um i'm not sure that race has ever been viewed by more people in australia or new zealand um at one time everyone getting up at two in the morning to watch because of the not just the scott dixon factor and the willpower factor but the scott mclaughlin factor um as someone who's done a similar thing and and gone overseas and and applied his own trade in the states especially um what's your read on scott and how he's not just settled into indycar but how his first indy 500 went because from our end it was really really impressive one little blip on the radar i don't think takes away from that overall weekend performance no he he's he's doing remarkably well like he's he's actually incredible Mm. um
3: Without that hiccup on on pit road, he would have been in the top 10, if not the top five, in my opinion. I mean, he had the pace, you know, what did he, where did he go? He came from 17th to eighth, I think yep. it was as high as he got seventh or eighth. Um, and he was there, he was sitting with them. They were, everyone was playing the fuel strategy game, but you know, for him to go there for the first time, be the best qualifying team Penske car. And, and then, you know, at one point be the highest running team Penske car is yeah. extraordinary. So you know, he's just um, the, the one word that keeps coming back whenever you talk to Rick Mears or Tim Sindrick or, or anybody, um, Jonathan Duguid, his engineer, is methodical. You know, and the other thing I think that's important for everybody to remember he's done a bunch of testing. He's done Barber Motorsports Park, which he calls the most intense track that he's ever been to. He said, You've got to show more commitment there than Bathurst, yeah. which is crazy. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. Then he goes to the streets of St. Petersburg, which is just a crazy house. Then you go to Texas Motor Speedway, which is one of the most uh, treacherous speedways as far as, you know, you put, a you know, especially now with that, that uh, PJ1 grip stuff they have on the track, which doesn't suit Indy cars, by the way. You put a wheel wrong there, you're in the fence at, at over 200 miles an hour. And then you go to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and he, he's made one mistake. And unfortunately that was coming into pits on, 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 at Indy. So, you know, to do all of that, all of that, that variation, all of those different challenges, and he's made one error to me, that just shows that uh, in, in my opinion, you're looking at a future IndyCar champion and a future Indy 500 winner.
0: I've got road America circled in my own little personal calendar of when I think podium, perhaps if not even better, because that just strikes me as the kind of track that at all gel will be long enough into the season where it all click. Um, and that circuit, it's everything that Scott McLaughlin loves in a racetrack and where he's performed so well in supercars, just, you know, massive high speed commitment stuff that he showed on the weekend that he's amazing at that, that I, I think by that point of the season, he'll be a, a legitimate contender if, if Penske's um, cars roll out well, which they should do a strange anonymous weekend for them in a way. And who would have thought you'd ever see willpower in bump day for the Indy 500, but um, quite remarkable stuff. Um, what about you, mate? Uh, how's your, your take on IndyCar at the moment? It's phenomenally competitive series to be involved with, isn't it?
3: Yeah, and and you know, I, I I um I preface these comments with no disrespect to any other series in the world, but I think it's I think it's the best. Mm. I think it's the best um, because we go to the racetrack each and every week, not know, legitimately not knowing who's going to win which is a really nice thing, isn't it? Because most series you could kind of point to two or three or four people who, you know, are almost assured of winning. That's not the case in IndyCar. Um, hence, hence what's happened this year, you know, six races, six different winners. Um, that's a not Penske, a record that's been a, done before, but it's pretty. hasn't won yet. <laughs> and a Penske has not won. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I don't know off the top of my tired head if that's a record or not, but uh, I'll, I'll look into that. I'll get our stats. Got to look at that. But yeah, I think IndyCar, you know, I had this chat with Chip Ganassi in, in Texas in the hotel lobby a few weeks ago. And I said, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, asking, you know, what about IndyCar right now? And, you know, in your opinion, what's the golden era? To, is it back to the cart days and you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, I don't, I, I don't care to look in the rearview mirror. He said, If you want to know what the golden days are of IndyCar, they're now, and I think that's a pretty pretty good point. Um, You look at the health of the series with sponsors, you look at the health of the series with the teams, and there's no there's no Richard there's no junk teams, Mm. there's no crappy teams like they're it's quality, you know. And one of the smaller and one of the newest teams just won the Indianapolis Motor Speed Indianapolis Five Hundred. Yeah. You know, in Maya Shank Racing, so up and down the grid, it's 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 phenomenal. Um, you know, probably probably the smallest team, I guess, uh, or one of the smaller teams is is Dale Coin Racing. You know, they they put they put um uh, Pietro Fittipaldi as the highest qualifying rookie, and not too far out of the fast nine in qualifying for the Indy Five Hundred. So there's there's strength all the way from the the Penske's, the Ganassi's, the Andretti cars, and now you got it. You look at Arrow McLaren SP. you know the the excitement and the the commitment from mclaren racing as as an entity you know they have a section of the mclaren technology center in the uk carved out and sectioned off for indycar and and they have people working at the mclaren technology center you know specifically on the indycar package um zach brown is over here as often as he can be you know to fit in as many indycar races with his with his formula one and sports car involvement so yeah i mean there's there's you know, we could talk all day about it, but in my opinion, I think it's it's incredible, and I think it's if you're trying to introduce somebody to a new series who doesn't really know much about motor racing, they're going to get a lot of entertainment from watching in, in, in IndyCar racing.
0: Just just to pick up on one of your points there, one of your early gigs when you went to the states with Speed TV was calling Grand Am as it was, and yeah, yeah. That, that's where Michael Shank's team really came to the fore, and and he invested heavily in that, and that that's what helped build michael shank racing as it was um into the entity it is now so it it must have been a a cool thing to see that team grab a victory against the heavyweights of indycar racing it was terrific and to see
3: mike and his wife um uh, in in the in the convertible with elio and his lifetime partner and his daughter you know just you know i think mike may have waved more than elio (laughs) (laughs) he was he was just pumped because um Uh, He and his wife, Mary Beth, they don't have children. Their children is the race team. And uh, they put everything, they've sacrificed everything. And um, I can remember those grand damn days, mate, where he was walking the tightrope of being open or closed. And um, he's just the gutsiest, most determined guy. And, you know, he's a former racer himself. Um, I I think he got to Indy Lights as a driver, um, but brought people up like uh, Sam Hornish Jr., you know, obviously, and eventually an IndyCar champ and, and um, Indy 500 winner. And, you know, he's he's AJ Armendinger. Um, there's been so many people that he's given a start and, and given a helping hand. And then um, to see him call, it actually just dawned on me that I called his Rolex 24 win and his Indy 500 win. Yes. So that's kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Um, and you've got a big adventure coming up soon because you're off to do the Olympics for NBC. And there aren't really any bigger jobs in sports broadcasting than that, are they? I'm pretty excited. Yeah, mighty bit, might even be a little bit nervous.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It, it'll be my fourth games. Um, uh, I did, I did Sochi in Russia, and then I did Rio. I did uh, in the in the Winter Games. I did the sliding sports, so it's fast. Then it's racing, which obviously fits uh, with, with everything else that I do. Um, so I did bobsled skeleton and luge at the winter games. So that was in Sochi and then in Pyeongchang and then in Rio, I did something I've never done, which was rowing. Wow. Um, rowing in the flat water sports. So it didn't go quite as fast as I'd like, <laughs> but so to do track and field now, it's going to be really, really, it's going to be fun. It's going to be, um, I think, you know, just trying to tie in the Indy 500 and, and, the games coming up in Tokyo to have the experience that I had last year at, at, uh, at Indy with no fans. Mm. I think that's going to kind of prepare me a little bit for Tokyo. I don't know what Tokyo is going to look like um, in regards to people in the stadium. I did the track and field world championships in Doha in Qatar at the end of 2019. And there was out of the 10 nights we were on air, there was only really about two nights where there was a decent crowd because there were Qatari athletes competing. The rest of it, there was a pretty lean crowd. So it wasn't enjoyable, but I'm kind of thinking about it big picture. I'm thankful that I had those experiences to prepare me for Tokyo, um, you know, for, for low numbers and and not a, not a great atmosphere, but you know, we won't let that take away from what's happening on the track. Do you go to Japan for that or do you call remotely from the States? No, I'll be there. I'll be in Tokyo. um, Staying right across the road from the stadium. So I think it's going to be a case of um, hotel room, commentary booth
0: hotel room yes. commentary booth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they won't there won't be much outside of that do you do you go back and draw on any any previous Olympic commentary mm. that you look at I mean my one of my broadcasting legends is Bruce machcavaney and and he's famous for his calls of the 100 and 200 over many many Olympics for seven over here do, do you go back and look at that stuff or do you just go into it with an open mind and and put the lead if you spin on it
3: yeah, definitely go into it with an open mind and 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 you know, call with my own style. But then you also you you can't ignore history, right? You have to go back and and um, part of our preparation, as is yours for for what you do, we watch a lot of tape, as they say. You know, you watch a lot of you watch a lot of clips and races and kind of kind of take it all in. Um, um it's a good question. I don't. I don't. I don't watch tape to try and reproduce what somebody else has done. I think that would be a mistake. You know, you've got to you've got to be yourself, um, but I think you also have to be a student of history. Um, I thought I hope I, d- I don't know what Channel Seven's plans are, but I have to get a picture with Bruce in Tokyo. That'd be pretty cool, you know, one Aussie there calling it for the Australian audience, and another okay. Aussie there calling it for the U- U.S. audience. And um, you know, my commentary partner in, in track and field is Atto Bolden. the um, oh, yeah from Trinidad and Tobago and the, 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 um, the the sprinting star. And um, he, a lot of, a lot of Atto's greatest races were called by Bruce for for the Australian audience. Yeah. And Atto loves Bruce. Um, So it'd be terrific for the three of us to get a picture together in, in Tokyo, if we could. And, and uh, we'll, we'll see how that works. Yeah. Um, I mean, Atto's still the 100 meter Commonwealth games record holder, 20 plus years on. So
0: And Bruce for sure called that race. Um, So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how the worlds collide. That's amazing. Uh, Last one, mate. Um, Do you stay in touch with what's going on back here? I know you and Greg Russ speak regularly, but uh, amongst others, I'm sure, but um, do you keep up with supercars and and everything going over here in in your old stomping ground?
3: I, I would, I would say loosely, um, you know, and I kind of mainly do that through, through social media and, and just calls with friends and, you know, I chat with Dick Johnson and, gary rogers quite often um and and then you know other journalistic friends and just people who kind of help help me stay in touch but it's it's uh it's a very it's a big challenge you know i'd love to stay in touch better with afl and nrl and i just it's kind of for every everything is kind of very surface level just just to barely stay in touch i know that my brisbane broncos are. Uh, Doing better than last year, but not as, as well as I'd like. I know that my Carlton Blues are doing better than in years past, but not as good as I would like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, I'm very excited about a really dear friend's son uh, by the name of Brock Feeney. Yes, um, you know Paul Paul Feeney has been a friend of mine for forever and ever and ever, and Feen uh, had a hand in my career in the early days, along with Paul Morris. Um, Paul and Terry Morris had a huge hand in my career. Uh, And so I love seeing what Brock's doing and and his, his climb to the top. Um, He's got that competitive gene in him, you know, from, from his dad. So um, I'm I'm excited to watch how far he can go. So yeah, I I stay in touch as, as loosely as I can. And thank goodness for social media. Otherwise I'd be, I'd be lost with what's going on down there, but um, I'm excited to see the, the health of both series, like how V8 Supercars is doing, or Supercars, I should say, is doing, and um, and also the um, the uh, TCR, uh, what is it? What's the, what's the name of the series? The oh, the Australian Racing Group ARG. Australian, Australian Racing Group, Group. yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So good, good to see that. That's that's really good. I get to commentate on some T- TCR cars here every now and then in the yep. um, as part of the IMSA WeatherTech Series. Uh, it's called Michelin Pilot Challenge, and TCR yeah. is one of two classes in that. So. I've got some friends who race in it. It's cool. It's really good racing, very competitive, um, you know, reasonably affordable. And and so I quite quite enjoy
0: that. Mate, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Now you're in full recovery mode after a, a massive <laughs> week, month of May at the Speedway. Congrats again. Uh, we There was a group chat of a whole array of Aussie media types and broadcasters, especially, and all of us were going, we can't believe that an Aussie gets to call the Indy 500. So we're all... Just unbelievably pleased that you get to do it and you did an outstanding job. So congratulations and thanks for joining us on the grid. Thanks, mate. And I haven't lost my Australian accent after all these years. No, noted,
3: (laughs) truly noted. Very impressive. Somebody (laughs) once told me I must be tone deaf and uh, I sure know that I can't sing. So let's hope the accent
4: stays forever. Uh, That's a good thing. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate your time.
2: Mark Walker, hello to you. Oh, Thanks for having me on your program, Tony. I've I've always
4: (laughs) dreamed of being on this end of the show.
2: It's just great to be here. Uh, Good to have you aboard, mate. And also, we've got our uh, guest joining us as well, who is a contributor on the program. He's given us a couple of great interviews with Will Davison over the time. It's Tom Archuling from Doric. Yes, you
1: beauty. beauty. (laughs) You Outstanding. Got him, yes. Hello, boys. How are we?
2: (laughs) Hello, Tom. We're well, mate. Uh, how are you? It's been a, a tough couple of weeks, I'm sure, in the uh the corporate industry.
1: Yeah, look, um, would have loved to have gone to Winton. You know, one of those people who want to go to Winton, amazingly. But uh unfortunately, you know, we had some pre-event stuff planned, but that didn't happen. So on up, what's upwards to the next one.
0: Tom, for those that aren't aware, uh firstly. Tell them what your specific job is and and also who you work for and um, how that ties in with the world of motorsport.
1: Yeah. So, Krause, my official job title is marketing and sponsorship manager for the Outro and Long Group, which is a group of hardware companies. And our flagship one is Doric, which has a business-to-business presence and a business-to-consumer presence. So the Doric shop, doric.com.au slash shop. And also we supply door and window hardware to all the biggest guys in Australia. So if you've got a, a blue Doric key on your key ring, have a look, that's ours. Um, so our job is obviously we sponsor uh, a lot of properties in Australia. So we do supercars with Will Davison and DJR and Australian Superbikes with Desmos Caddy. And my job is basically to do the sponsorship stuff and then make that make money, basically for our company.
4: I suppose... I'm always fascinated in how all these stickers on race cars work, what they mean, what's the deal behind it, why are these companies involved? And and Doric's different. It's been around for, what are we now, 16, 17 years. Year 18, Marco. In the sport, year 18, oh yeah. Get the stats updated. But it's a very different sort of thing. Like it's such a focus on away from the track. It's corporate hospitality. It's events at customers and all this sort of thing, which is, a totally different slant to how a lot of these other supercar sponsors go about their trade. A lot of these other companies, it's all about having a big sticker down the side of the car and getting a, you know, the TV and the other peripheral exposure from that. But for Doric, it's more about the relationship building that motorsport brings people together.
1: Yeah. So, you know, our activation budget is the same as what we spend on the actual race cars themselves. So, for us, the whole aim of the sponsorship is to to grow our customer base and pick off different ranges one by one. And that's what we've done since 2009, since I started the job where we basically had a, a targeted plan and we take the customers to the racetrack that we want to grow and we build the relationships with them because at the end of the day, we want to buy from people that we like and hopefully they like us. And the more they like us, um, the better chances we have of, of getting more product into those guys. So... That's what we've been doing for the last 10, 12 years. And we've been doing that across the country. And the great thing about supercars as a brand, as a sport, is that you can take the same show across every state and territory of Australia and New Zealand. Um, and for a company like ours that has a lot, a lot of companies, you know, AFL and NRL, for example, they're, only, they're very much territorial um, sports. So to have one that can go to every state and territory of Australia plus New Zealand, take the same show on the road, not have to change. And the access we get with the team is nothing you can get in any other sport, and that drives relations with our with our customers and our staff, and then obviously leads to increased engagement and more sales, which is what we're in the game for.
2: So, is that how it's all quantifiable effectively by increased sales? Is that the only way you're actually able to quantify the the uh, the effectiveness of the sponsorship? Well, I think
1: there's some short term stuff and some medium term stuff. Like, so obviously for last for us last year we. We've been tied to Will Davison since 2011 and obviously 2020, we missed out because of the 23 red uh, close down. So we had a bit of time to reflect on what that was like. And the building industry for us has been through some peaks and troughs and 2019, for example, was a really slow year for industry, but we did a lot of work um, relationship wise, which then in 2020 and 2021, we've seen the benefits of. So, It's yes, sales is probably the number one measure, but then also there's the the good the good PR and the good vibe you get from the people that are at the events who then wear because we give them merchandise, so then we give them then you see the guys wearing our merchandise in the street and like I've even seen a doric cap signed by Will Davidson on eBay for twenty five bucks, for example, like things like that. that. Um, you can't that's not something something you can buy. Um, so it just keeps the brand everywhere and. Uh, the longevity of the brand itself.
4: You mentioned access, and that's something that supercars and motorsport is incredibly good at. Uh, With football, you don't get to go out there and pack a scrum or do a line out or or have any of that sort of interaction, but you can do hot laps in a supercar. Uh, Walking on the grid, going for a pit tour. I noticed at the bend after... um, team had some success they sent the trophy upstairs to the corporate suite which is something that you just can't get with other sports that i think we're very lucky here in motorsport that we've got access
1: to and the teams are fantastic you know the teams understand i think they look after their sponsors so well and some do it better than others obviously but to to be able to to link success on track and then off track to bring give those experiences to your customers is something that you can't buy you know that's what they call money can't buy experiences right so, you know, to, for us um, as a smaller sponsor financially, something like the Bend, for example, we could have all our customers on the grid um, for the pre-race grid walk. So Anton was on pole for the Sunday races and we we're able to put our guys out the front of the grid in front of the P1 pole position and had a great group photo, which we then got out and then sent to all our customers. So that type of stuff, you can't you can't do you can't do in different sports that you can do in in motorsport. So you know, very fortunate in supercars to have that great access.
0: How do you select the people that you back? So you've mentioned your relationship with Will Davidson, which goes a long way back, and instantly he strikes you as a fantastic person to be involved with because he's personable he speaks really well great with the media presents well but you're involved with John Bauer you mentioned your involvement with Dick Johnson Racing how do you sift through what I imagine is a lot of sponsorship proposals that come across your desk and go yeah that's the kind of people we want to work with I think
1: crowds it's fit right so our industry is windows and doors and it's not being um it's it's a, a white male older man industry um so someone like john bauer he yeah. resonates with people because he's been there and done it from the 70s the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and people still talk to him about 1989 Bathus, 1995 winning the championship they don't They talk about those things and he is one of the greatest people in remembering somebody's name and makes them feel special. And that type of thing for a person who's looking up to those guys, they just, they love, right? And someone like Will, he, he just gets it. He's from a motorsport family. He understands the game and we want to choose people who resonate with our customer base and with the general public because they spend a lot of time with our people and basically they're an extra salesperson. So, and we call them ambassadors for a reason because they are ambassadors for our company.
2: How much does the no dickhead policy come into play? A
1: hundred percent, hundred percent.
2: And I say that also because sometimes there's also an advantage of getting someone who's a little bit cheeky People can also have that affiliation with that person as well. Someone, for example, like a Shane Warne, who we know is a, a, a pretty cheeky guy around town. He's done you know a lot of a lot of different things, but still resonates in sponsorship areas because of who he is.
1: We have 100% no dickhead policy, um, but also we like people a bit more cutting edge and a bit more um, you know what you see in public. Maybe when you close the doors and it's just a private. Event. for us, you have a little bit more free reign to, to be who you are. And I think, you know, there's the the media side of it, which is a lot different than it was in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s to what it is today. Because, you know, a lot of the, the bigger guys sponsored by the bigger companies, you might not be able to say some things. And you see supercars even getting involved with people not being able to hold uh, energy drinks cans when taking photos when they win races, you know, things like that. So um, we let them go because people want to be, they want to see people being authentic and that's who these people are. They're authentic race drivers who love their job. And they also love entertaining people.
4: it been a heck of a journey. It started out Paul Crookshank racing back in the day. I suppose the, the first property that you sponsored was actually Will Davison when he was at Team Dynamic for a little bit there in uh, 04. Uh, Paul Crookshank Racing, James Rosenberg, uh, Erebus, been with Will when he was at HRT, obviously, fpr and the pro drive era you've gone through a lot of different teams you sort of had a lot of different drivers represent the brand over the years and a lot of different experiences i guess
1: yeah we um last week we put up a a, a doric um Bathurst dream team because everybody seems to be doing that all these sponsors are bringing out dream teams and we had a list of 30 or 40 names and um yeah we've we've had a a, a few drivers go through the through the brand and they're all great people. Um, and it's a great journey to work with different teams. And you just build all those relationships. You know, someone like me, I'm so fortunate to, to be in the paddock for since 2009. You know, it's you know, 12, 13 years I've been going to supercars races and getting paid to do it. Um, it's pretty great. And we build those relationships. And for us, there's the customer relationships and there's the team relationships and the supercars relationships, because you get. You know, those experiences you get, you know, little bonuses on the side, which is um, which you then can give to your people to then sell more stuff.
0: Uh, now, you're clearly a motor racing fan, which obviously helps the cause. And uh, I remember in 2017, I think it was, you actually filed a story that ran on the Race Talk about. Uh, a trip to Silverstone to see some old Williams Formula 1 cars, which is very, very cool. But just tell us a bit about your own personal motorsport journey. Where did the love of it come from? Um, highlights? What, what's your take on the sport? Well,
1: I was fortunate to be called middle name Alan after Alan Moffat. My father is an Alan Moffat fan.
4: <laughs> Set up for a dive from day one. Love us. <laughs> so we have a model car
1: collection at home, which is into third cabinet, which is fantastic. And I was at a, my first racetrack at Amru Park at the age of six months. So right. I've been into motorsport since I was in nappies. And once you catch the drug, you don't lose it. Um, and I had been in motorsport since 2009. And then in 2015, I decided to go to London to chase the Formula One dream. And I got to do some work in Formula E, which was pretty cool. Um, going to a Formula E races is one of the weirdest experiences of all time because you actually don't hear the cars because they don't sound... Yeah like anything but washing machines, and you, know, you can hear them from within 10 metres. Um, but I get to, went to Moscow, set the track up for Moscow, London, Paris. Uh, so it was some great experiences there, Berlin. And then um, got to do some cool things like go to the 40th anniversary of the Williams in Silverstone, and then went around out of money, started to come back to Australia, and lucky enough, got back into the supercars world, and oh, just, it's this Australian what scene's at the moment, it's such a, it's such a, it's such momentum. You know, there's so many great categories at the moment across supercars um, and the AIG series. To for a motorsport fan in Australia, supercar, superbikes, it's such such great stuff to watch right now.
2: So I want to know who's easier to deal with: individuals or teams?
1: Individuals. Teams is already like teams. There's obviously they've got to be very careful because more money means those guys get more preference, the bigger sponsors get what they want. And I suppose, you know, not a, like the the boost sponsorship, for example, you know, that's a major sponsorship. It's never a minor sponsorship. So he can get all the airtime he wants from himself from saying his things. Someone like me, for example, would never be able to get that because of the way we sit in the organization. So definitely working personally with drivers is easier than teams.
4: Now, where's the best corporate setups? You, you've done the tour. Where do you like having corporate boxes? And I suppose the part B to that question is, is there much of a price disparity? Like if you pick a, a Winton round, is it a lot cheaper than going to the Gold Coast or Townsville or one of these big uh, red letter events? What's uh, What gives you the best bang for buck?
1: Definitely the circuit, permanent circuit ones are cheaper than the street tracks, 100%. Um, so the Gold Coast is generally the most expensive of the year. And it's also probably the best uh, atmosphere-wise. And we try and do one in every region because that's where our customers are based. So for me, the best corporate was probably Townsville at the start when we had the first Townsville years where it was, you know, I think not 9, 10, 11, 12, when it was really buzzing. The streets were closed off, 180,000 people. That was really good. And I think right now probably Adelaide was the Clipsal uh, Super Looper event, which we had and no longer don't no really have, was the best by a long way. It was the greatest event we had on the calendar in terms of corporate. It was four days packed. It was warm. The weather was great. And mm-hmm. generally you had great on-track action 24-7. There wasn't a dud category um, on track at all.
4: But saying that, a big, hot, warm four-day event in summer, does it, does it, you- Beer bill go up a lot. Like, do, don't you prefer to have something cold at winter? We just have to sell a few coffees. Yeah,
2: isn't it just hundred bucks a head? And you drink what you drink. Uh, that's
1: that's it. Your There's no. Uh, oh, there's right. no. Um, there's no limit. So you can uh, get on the grog from when they sell you to when you not get when they tell you to stop. And it doesn't cost me. You know, I'm I'm cheap for a corporate. You know, I have to pay to go, but I don't drink because so I'm working. So I don't. I don't, I can't take the the drinking. So someone else got to do it for me. Hmm.
2: <laughs> Well, Tom, it's been an interesting chat. We don't often get the opportunity to to delve into the sponsorship area as much as we would like. So thank you so much for your time. And it it has been proven that podcasting also can be very lucrative for companies who want to (laughs) jump on board as a sponsor. I just wasn't sure whether you were aware of that. Well, I don't. I I think there's a a gentleman
1: on the call called Mr. R. Crail. Uh, We've had a discussion multiple times around the Doric brand sponsoring the the race talk, but I haven't really had a proposal yet, but...
4: Can we have a, a, uh, an edit point, like, just before this? Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I think this is no, no this is we are completely
0: honest and open
4: about our, our uh, business activity.
2: Proposal will our, be in the email business. tomorrow. No,
1: but thank you, thank yeah. you, boys. Good to, good to talk properly. Um I love what you guys do and crash on it and keep pushing. It's great stuff. Well done. Thank you.
2: And Mate, thank you so much, too, for the work that you've uh, you provided fun. us with the uh, Will Davison chats. We'll continue to use them throughout the year because... There, Our our fans like to have a listen to them, and always good to hear what Will has got to say about racing. But thank you, mate, for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you shortly. All the best, guys. Tom Archuli from Doric. Or oh, Doric, yes, Doric. Yeah. Yes. Doric. Well, I was trying to get that Greek inflection. Yeah, got it. Joining oh, us here close, on the Greek. All right, uh, let's continue the show. There's been a fair bit happening over the weekend, especially over in the world of America with the Indy 500. A fantastic race, boys. It went right down to the wire, didn't it? You really didn't know who was going to win that one. Even even in the last hundred meters, when the lead cars came on traffic, anything could have happened.
0: Super race, Bex, just awesome. Um, And what a what an outcome for the sport, to the, the first race back there with a, with a crowd after last year, which really did feel weird because um, so much of the soul of that race, even watching from home, is about the, the fact that it's rammed full of people and you can hear the crowd over the race cars. Uh, what a driver to do it. A little bit of indie history. In fact, it's not really a little bit. It's a massive bit of indie history yeah. to have the fourth only four-time winner of a race that's been going 105 occasions. That's remarkable. Um, And the way in which it happened, fastest ever field for the Indy 500 in qualifying, fastest ever Indy 500 stage, an average speed of 190 miles an hour, um, less cautions in Indy history, um, 35 lead changes, I think, 400 on-track passes um, and a a brilliant fight to the end between two of the young stars of IndyCar racing and a 46-year-old Brazilian bloke who still does the job spectacular show great race absolutely loved it um story mark didn't go quite the way we'd hope for the local heroes but you, you get around that just for the the spectacle that occurred in the, the wee hours of monday morning
4: at least scotty was in the conversation like he didn't know what to expect from the race like how's it going to go how's he going to finish but if it wasn't for his mistake on pit lane, he was on for a top 10. He was up there in the conversation. And even when he ran long in the fuel, hoping for that caution at the end, which never came, like he was running with those leaders. He was yep. well and truly a part of what was going on there. So uh, a great first outing for him. You know, he led Penske in qualifying and he, he did nearly a perfect job there on Sunday. So, you know, onwards and upwards for Scotty.
2: Yeah. yeah. The other New Zealander as well, boys, Scott Dixon, also uh, with fuel problems, but he obviously was a lot earlier. He had to come in during that caution period. Pit lane was closed, and that really screwed his race over.
0: Yeah, just a worst-timed pace car for uh, for both Scott Dixon and Alex Rossi and, and a bunch of guys who were due their first round of stops. The, the irony of all of that is that Scott Dixon is generally regarded as the best fuel saving driver in IndyCar car racing which is why he's won so many races and that he invents fuel where there isn't any and gets the thing in but even then had to pit under a closed pit which is a no-no but you can do it if it's an emergency stop which is what it was because the thing was dead stick um the irony is those cars can roll for half a lap without stopping because they're so drag free which is a whole idea of running on a super speedway but the thing just didn't refire uh, and that was his race done. The fact he got back on the lead lap was meteoric. And yeah. had it been a usual Indy 500 with five or six or seven pace car interruptions, it might've been a different story. And he might've been able to strategize his way back into the race. But it was such a fast open race. He couldn't get himself back on the lead lap. So day done for probably the only guy in the 33 car field that could have been classed the favorite, given what he'd done in the month leading up to it, because it was
4: dominant right up to that point it's sort of funny because it was carnage free largely i mean that race start that was that had a bit on didn't it oh, i yeah, thought boy, that yeah. we were absolutely on for a shunt there somehow they sawed themselves out through that the only accidents were uh graham rahel when his wheel fell off which uh-huh. is merely graham rahel's fault and those dramas coming into the pits with uh Stephen wilson uh simona Defer- silvestro uh went up losing out in the pits and we'll Will Power had a spin as well. So it was seemed yeah. like the pit entry was where all the drama was, but only two cautions for the whole race was uh, a remarkable effort, considering how ferocious the racing was.
0: Yeah. I, I, the the whole pit lane thing for mine was interesting. And I, I, I watched the replay back last night and on Monday night, and uh, Townsend Bell picked up on it that, that he heard whispers up and down pit lane that there were people sort of trying to do interesting thing with their brakes because, of course, the less... Uh, friction you've got on your brakes, the better the car's going to roll. It'll find that extra point, one of a mile an hour that you need at that place. Um, and you know Scott McLaughlin was really hard on himself for not pumping the brakes enough to get into pit lane, which is why he had his dramas. But three Penske cars had the same issue. He had it, Will Power had it and ended up spinning. And Simona, who was a Penske car, had the same problem, all of them with braking issues getting into pit lane. So- it, it, look other drivers had it Ryan Hunter Ray went in way too deep cost himself a shot at winning because he was real fast but there's it, something in there when three of the five Penske cars have the same basic issue going into the lane so a little strange little thing there but yeah that was that was weird but such a fast ferocious race like you said and the way it all played out was great but I, I read a story from one of the Indianapolis press um, who was talking about and. Um, quoted one of the drivers going, you could see that Elio had raced there 20 times and Polo had only raced there once before because the way that Evers just played that race in the last 15 laps and bided his time, waited and waited and then struck when he needed to right at the point where Polo had absolutely no shot of getting back. So that, that was where experience came to the fore in the 21 starts of Indy 500 history that Evers had really came to the fore, and that's why he won that race.
4: And one of the other great stories that I like from it is Mike Shank. his car mm. owner. Um, my favourite podcast outside of... Uh, what's this one called? Shebex? On I've forgotten again. On the Grid. Oh, on uh, the Run Home. On the Run Home. Uh, is a, a podcast called Dinner with Racers. They've interviewed all the legends of North American motorsport, but it's often these guys who you've never heard of that they go and talk to that have the most incredible stories. And Uh, Mike Shank is well-known. If you're into your sports car racing over in the States, you'd know about Mike Shank. But just a Danderworth great bloke, great story. Started out at the the lower levels of the road to Indy. Here he is owning cars in the Indy 500 and winning the whole show, which was a pretty amazing thing.
2: No doubt it certainly is an amazing thing. The whole event is an amazing thing. And to see it, as you said, Richard, with crowd there, is fantastic and the audibility of that crowd at oh, times yeah. when guys are overtaking or even when Roger Penske was speaking at the end of his speech and they're like, that noise is just amazing. And there was only 150,000 people there. I can't remember what it was like when we had 4, 400,000 there when we, when we were there, but it must have been loud because you get so yeah. enthralled.
0: Well, I, I can, um, and, and the thing that struck with me, there's, there's heroes of that place that get a bigger roar. Yeah. And on Monday morning, our time, it was when Connor Daly got the lead and he's from Noblesville, Indiana. So he's about as local as they come. Um, and he got an enormous roar, uh, when he grabbed the lead for the first time in his, his life, having grown up at that race, uh, obviously his dad, Derek Daly, famous for being involved there and as a driver and a broadcaster as well. Um, that was incredible. I, I remember it in 16 Shebex when Tony Canaan got the lead. And Kanan's one of those drivers who's a an indie hero, despite not being a Yank, but they, they love him there. He's a cult hero at that place. And I, I, from memory, he got the lead in 16, 40 or 50 laps in. And where we were halfway between one and two, um, the place went ballistic. And you could not hear racing cars for punters, which was just epic. Uh, yeah, and I, I thought NBC did a super job of that on the weekend you could hear the crowd. So the, the, the audio was outstanding, but then at the end when Castro Nevers was going absolutely bonkers celebrating, they just let it go. Yeah. Um, And even like Will Power went up and said, you're an effing legend. Um, And usually American (laughs) broadcasters would be "Oh, we're sorry for that. We're sorry. We're sorry, but there's just nothing. They just let it go. And I thought that was just fantastic. Really, really well done. And so much of the, the soul of that race is in the 400,000 people there. And the, the beauty of it is, is that it's not permanent. Or it's not individual seating, they're bleacher seats. So when you're at 40% capacity, it still looked in the grandstands full, yep. um, which is absolutely brilliant. I, I think I read an interview with Doug Bowles, who's a track president, and it's going to be interesting in two weeks. He said, look, we'll, we're going to monitor it and see if there's a noticeable spike in COVID cases in Indiana, in two weeks time to see if mm. there is a there was an outcome of it but um like everyone that went in was supposed to be vaccinated they mandated masks no one wore them but they said you had to wear them so you know at least they tried um look fantastic uh, just such a cool thing to see and um you know we we're, we're probably been lucky here because we've had that you know this year where we've had crowds back at racetracks but Um, for america that's a a massive step forward for them and it's such an important part of that race
4: our team we gave this event the power rankings treatment on the race talk Mm. normally it's something reserved for our shannon's mates or the supercar events here in australia it was refreshing to do something that was totally different over in the states twitter is a much bigger thing than it is here locally so there was a lot more Content to harvest and to go through. And my goodness, listen! You go through the article, and there is some genuinely funny stuff. And I think the funniest yeah. is that clip of Connor Daly in the background of the. It was a Marco yeah. Andretti interview. He just casually pulls out this comb on from day. on Polder <laughs> and just starts brushing the mullet and
2: a flicks it around. Comb. It was a
0: flick knife mullet comb.
2: <laughs> what what is, this? This is a Great mullet.
0: Well, we put Connor in the in the power rankings in the top 10 because he's the kind of personality that the sport needs he's just loose but i mean he can drive a race car clearly but yeah he's he's loose he rocks a mullet he absolutely loves the fact that he rocks a mullet um he's so fiercely passionate about it but he's just such a loose unit as well which is just so good
4: the the social bants between him and mclaughlin a classic. There's yes. some really good stuff yeah. there when they were playing golf during the week and and everything yeah. else that's been going on. There's some there's some good personalities over there at the moment, and Scotty's fitting right in with it.
2: Yeah. He certainly is. Uh, just on Scotty, guys. Of course, he was a rookie of the of the race, which was fantastic for him yep. to to get that prize. Had that prize not been up on offer and that title of being the uh, the leading rookie, do you reckon he might have tried to go the distance? No, well, he was going to run out. It's just impossible? No, you've you got to finish.
0: And, and remember, it's a championship race as well uh, and worth double points. And he's still in the top 10 in the championship. So he had to get the thing to the finish. The thing about Scott, and, and it's been the story since his first race, he looked like he'd done that race forever. Oh, yeah. like it just He didn't at, look out of place. At, at no point did he look like he was out of it. And you go, okay, well, he, he balls that like going into pit lane. But Will Power didn't. And he won the race in 2018. And he's one of the most successful IndyCar car drivers in history. So he wasn't the only one. Um, it just, it felt so natural for him being in that race. Like just, I thought the job he did was really, really good. And really you know, good. And he was five laps, different Mark, like five laps from having enough fuel in that thing to go to the end. And he would have finished fifth. Like yeah. Just amazing.
4: And the thing that I'm thankful for after he had to make that pit stop, basically lost a lap. He was almost in the photo there at the finish. I'm just yes. glad that, he didn't have a, a part of the outcome there at the end because he was obviously yeah. running his own race and was in a pack of cars. So he got could, just couldn't pull over and stop. But I'm just glad that those leaders didn't catch him before the, the finish line. Yeah. Another lap. Yeah. Another lap.
0: They would have been there. No, it was such a cool motor race. Um, absolutely worth getting up for. Um, pulverized me on Monday, but man, just <laughs> no, no regrets for that. Uh, I skipped the NASCAR race. wasn't interested in that and got caught up with a little bit of sleep, but um. Yeah, so a cool the thing Na-
4: and... the NASCAR race is nearly finished so <laughs> yeah, yeah no, <laughs> catch you know it'll take
0: It might be done by the time this goes live. Um, it, it
2: definitely it definitely oh, yeah, every on. year earns its spot and just solidifies its spot in the top 3 or 4 motor races in the world.
0: Yeah, of of all the things last year Shebex that were strange. So empty MCG for a footy game. Yeah. That that's Weird. That was just shocking to see yep. empty Bathurst, and yeah, you know, yeah, there were five thousand people. That rubbish. That look, look, it looked awful. That was really, really strange. But but watching the Indy five hundred, which to the day is still the largest single day sporting event in the world, to have no one there, that was just obscure.
2: Mm. So
0: forty percent capacity or not, uh, the biggest mm-hmm. thing for mine was that how much a role having punters there plays a role in the atmosphere of that race there or not watching it on TV. It was such a factor Um, because it was so shockingly obvious last year that it just had no soul because of that. And that race is entirely built on soul. Like it's the longest existing motor race in the world. It's got so much history built around it being that enormous Coliseum. And um, I I think it was a stark reminder for those that really, really love that race and follow it closely about, how terrible last year was and how amazing it was to have have punters back there and the fact they got such a good show man you can't nail it yeah. this year with a with a setup I don't don't deviate from that that was a good. good
2: friend Dale rogers came up with an idea for a, a top five which we're probably due to do one we haven't done one for a while top five racetracks you've been to and top five on the bucket list mm-hmm. i reckon yep. that might not be too far away we'll get the, the public involved with their thoughts as well well, it's time to yes. record that one, but that'll be a ripper.
4: Ah, uh, you know what's on my bucket list? Winton supercars. That's uh, it's definitely <laughs> right up there. Ah, uh, that was a shame, wasn't it? And was the pin was pulled on that Thursday, wasn't it? So it yeah. wasn't quite the Wednesday morning that we're normally used to with the recording of this podcast. Yeah. I've never known.
2: Really I've never so many of my podcasts to become irrelevant after twenty four hours <laughs> yeah. in the last twelve months.
4: Yeah, but uh, so, at least I, they've. I've- They've put it off till August, so we'll be able to freeze any campers that aren't well prepared. So that's going to be something oh, it'll, to be colder. it'll be way colder. And it was yep. freezing cold there in the weekend. It would have been three, minus three degrees there yep. on the weekend. But August is going to be shockingly cold.
0: I, I was at Winter for some Rallycross two years ago in late July, and it was a 15-minute process to get the ice off the window yep. of the car in the morning before driving to the racetrack. And, yeah, it, it's just... Lucky they're bringing the super duper soft tire. <laughs> They'll look, need uh, it. it yeah, absolutely. Um, fortunately, though, um, I think we did a reasonably good job of previewing the event. So come the last weekend of July, we'll uh, just, we'll just be able a copy and paste. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it. I think it's valid. I think so what we'll, you just roll in.
4: What you want for the event is the hard liquor concession. Yes, because I think you'll be selling a lot of rumbos just before bedtime there.
0: Has Jim Beam still got porridge rights at Supercar events? Because they're going
4: to do a they're ripping trade there.
0: I would be just they, shots.
2: I would suggest a yes. nude run at Mount Buller the day before just to get acclimatized. Oh, to a what now? A nude run at Mount Buller.
0: I'm not sure why you'd put. You just do it at Winton. It'll be just as cold. Yeah, that's true. Just worth less snow,
4: or maybe. But it was a it was a tough deal because I I had people coming down from Queensland to race in the support events and. I'm on the phone to them the whole way down going, just park it at Albury, mate. Don't cross this border because you'll be in strife trying to get home, which uh, fortunately was the case. And by the sounds of it, there were a whole lot of different people from V8 TV. The supercars teams from Queensland were parked up at the border and they're all just there waiting for the inevitable uh, pull the pin and go home. Fortunately, the Kinross Woolshed opened at 10 a.m. So I think they did a booming trade with the car park full of (laughs) race cars.
2: We should mention too that we did try to get, comment from a couple of uh, racing teams here in Melbourne in regards to the possibility of a move up to New South Wales on Wednesday of this week, which of course is the day after we record this podcast, but no one seemed to want to talk about it, which was quite interesting.
0: Yeah. I think it's a fairly delicate scenario, because everyone's still got nightmares from the 40 odd days they're on the road last year, I think. So as, as we go to, Really go to print, do we? As we go to uh, go to record, um, it looks like that the Victorian teams will go to New South Wales and they'll be able to self isolate for two. the The Darwin Triple Crown, so they can go and run there, um, and then allegedly they've been promised that they can go home after that, irrespective of what's going on in Victoria at the time. Um, so this is, of course, around the Victorian lockdown. For those of you that are listening online through RSL, um, Melbourne's back in lockdown again, and um, there's no movement in or out of the state at the moment. So, yeah, it's another one of those situations where they they really they have to get Darwin in for their government contractual obligations up there, and then then they're just going to play it by ear and hope that things have settled down so that the
4: field can roll on to Townsville,
0: and then Winton. It will be after that.
4: It's interesting, the comms plan that seems to be coming from supercars at the moment, and a lot of it seems to stem around no comment. Uh, yeah. You look at this Winton event and the supercars website rehashed an eight-hour-old press statement from the Bonilla Auto Club on Wednesday evening, eight hours after it was published mm. on the Winton social media channels, which I, I thought was a bit weird, saying that it's all confirmed going ahead. Well, the, the way it was worded, in my liking, wasn't very good because it was all saying that it's all systems go. We're definitely happening where I think it was more of a softer approach going, Hey, we're all going, if we're allowed to sort of thing, I think that yeah. probably would have been a lot easier way to let down all the fans. If they were more understanding that way, but the, the gag order that went down last year, the gag order that's down at the moment, the non-communication about gen three stuff, if they get out in front and own the message, then they get ahead of it. They don't lose all the, the punters, you know, all the punters who are offside about Gen 3 because they don't know what's going on. The media who are offside who don't know what's going on. If you get mm. in front of it, then you control the message and you don't yeah. get all these people who are telling you that Gen 3 is going to be rubbish, that whatever moves are happening with the championship at the moment are rubbish. That's just my, my thinking about it. I might be wrong, but um, yeah.
0: No, I, I think it's valid. I, I really do. And yeah, it's, it, and look, it, it's hard to get on the front foot about something you know, nothing about because this situation changes so quickly, but saying nothing at all, doesn't help the cause at all. Yep. Um, and, and you know, that I think the, um, the AFL has been quite good about communicating what they're trying to do as far as shifting games around. And, mm. and, you know, they've come out and said, Oh, look, we're, we're working with state governments to do a fly in fly out options for our teams. and, you know, they've got a track record of 12 months of operating in bubbles and things like that to, to go to governments with, to keep the competition going. So yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with you at all. I think it's um there's not been enough said and yeah, we, we approached every supercar team based in Melbourne and not one of them was willing to go on the record about what the plans are and, and what's going to happen. I think they understand that Darwin has to happen for sure. Um, But yeah, it, it's a really, really difficult situation. And um. Yeah, we, we just don't know. I mean, you know, Melbourne could have five days of no cases from the day we push record and, you know, in two weeks it'll be open and it won't be an issue. But um, at the same time, it could get worse. And and what yeah. happens if, if this goes for a month? Um, do they go on the road again to keep the sport going? Or is it does that just not happen?
2: I, I, I don't know. That, that would be a disaster if it doesn't for everybody. Time will tell. Gentlemen, always great to catch up. We'll do it again uh, next week. Thanks, Jamex. Nice work on the pronunciation at the start. Good effort. Like it. Thank you very much, Richard Crail. Mark Walker, catch you next week, too, buddy. Thanks, Tony.
4: Looking forward to a solid Sunday night's sleep this week.
2: And we'll catch you next week as well, right here on The Grid. This program is a radio show limited production.
4: Tell your friends there's more at RadioLamont.com.